0: The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app.
1: In one of the richest economies in the world, you would expect safe, affordable housing to be a given. Yet millions of people up and down the UK face the reality of sky-high rents, unsafe living conditions and precarious tenancies. And all too often, it's the most vulnerable in society that suffer the most – The housing crisis is multifaceted, intersecting with so many other issues facing society and successive failures to properly address the root causes has only exacerbated the situation. It's often easy to forget that it doesn't have to be like this. And on The Brief, we've had the amazing opportunity to discuss some of these issues with the activists, architects, journalists, authors, placemakers and planners who are at the forefront of bringing about positive change. My name is Poppy Waring, I produce The Brief, and this week I will be bringing you a special episode revisiting some of the top housing stories we've covered over the past few months. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. The shortage of affordable, safe housing is a nationwide crisis. However, it's perhaps most acutely felt in the capital where one in 50 people are now homeless or living in temporary accommodation. This is a shocking figure for a city famed for its rich cultural heritage going back generations. Prudence Ivy, a previous guest on this show, who we will be hearing a little bit more from in just a bit, wrote an article in the Evening Standard this summer posing the question, have all London's characters been driven out of town? As someone who grew up in London in the 90s and noughties, Ivy says she has witnessed a worrying decline in the vibrant individuals and iconic characters over the last 20 years. She attributed this trend to the dwindling availability of affordable living arrangements, the decline of small music clubs and gay bars, as well as the looming extinction of unique venues within the city. The UK is set to lose 10% of grassroots music venues by the end of 2023, according to the Music Venue Trust. And London alone has lost 35% of its vital grassroots music venues since 2007, a trend which is forecast to continue sadly. This is an issue we brought to Londoner and cultural producer Nabil Alkanani. He gave some context on what contributed to making the city so rich in cultural diversity in the first place and unpacks why this is now under threat.
2: I think there's an, a number of contributing factors that uh, sort of created this sort of hodgepodge melting pot of London. I know it's such a cliche term to say, but there are histories of migration and, and, and alternative ways of life and the sort of cross-pollination of that that happens in London and other cities across, across Britain, but the capital being one of the most populous mm. um, uh, centres in Britain kind of personifies that cross-pollination and that sharing of one's culture, one's worldview, one's sort of values, and that's manifested in, in, in food, in fashion, in, in arts and culture. Notting Hill Carnival is a perfect example of that. And I think once upon a time... The city, v- in a way, valued alternative views, alternative cultures. And now where the tolerance between populations in London is under threat, perhaps. And I think the pursuit of capital is potentially mm. one of the, mm. the main sort of barriers to organic interactions and culture
3: yeah ivy's talks i mean i i guess prudence ivy is is editor of the homes and property section so she's particularly interested in that how does this relate to housing how does this relate to the value of land and in her her piece she says well maybe it's to do with the closure of uh, independent clubs uh, a lack of housing uh, affordable housing closure of diy venues of antique shops um, she sort of points out that in the 70s and the 80s, squatting was not criminalised. You know, you could take shelter in an abandoned building and, you know, not be afraid of the police. Um, and local councils also at that time were, you know, uh, renting buildings that, uh, out to housing um, uh, cheaply as kind of housing cooperatives. Or It was just much, much easier to find a sort of secure-ish place to, to live and exist in the city. Um, I wonder, what, what do you think that the effect of kind of changing housing policies over the last few decades has had in kind of gentrifying London and on pushing some of these kind of uh, more creative people out of the city who who maybe don't fall into the kind of typical mould of an everyday worker and, and, and struggle to kind of compete with the
2: housing market as it has become more and more extremely expensive to live here? We've started to see a decline in social housing being built across the country since the Localism Act. Um, And we've started to see a rise of private rental schemes being sort of fast forward Mm. development happening all across the country. Multiple private sector organisations building large swathes of the city, all of which are backed by sort of shareholder Interest and mm. uh, have have a bottom line of maximising a return on investment, and in order to do such thing, you must cater and you must design around those who have the most amount of expendable income, and they tend to not be sort of racialised working class people in Britain. Also, an undeniable fact is that mostly racialized mostly working class people forms the bedrock of the creative and cultural scene in Britain. Nearly every single celebrated artist, singer, rapper comes from a racialized working class background, and so if a city isn't designed around these specific populations, then you you risk marginalizing them and um kind of not creating the infrastructure needed to nurture sort of the talent and, and creative expression that exists. So that's why everyone's moved to their their phones. You will see more creative expression on TikTok and on Instagram rather than manifest in a physical space.
1: The housing crisis can also be considered a health crisis with new data from shelter indicating that millions of people of renters have experienced poor health due to living in cold, damp or mouldy properties. Air pollution is another factor which was shockingly brought to public attention by the death of Ella Kissy Deborah due to living in a flat just 25 metres from the congested South Circular Road in Lewisham back in 2013, which was just three weeks after her ninth birthday. She became the first person to have air pollution listed as a cause of death at an inquest in the UK. Earlier this summer we covered a new piece of analysis which showed how race and income affect the quality of air you breathe. This report pulled together research from the last few years, laying out the extent of the air quality crisis facing specific communities. One survey by the NGO Global Black Maternal Health highlighted a distinct lack of awareness of air pollution risks amongst black mothers. The analysis also emphasises stark disparity in air quality between the richest and the most deprived areas across England, with the most air pollution found in the poorest and least white communities. Here's Merlin talking about the tragic scale of this issue.
0: Well, put simply, the organisation of our built environment, our society, our housing certainly, and our infrastructure, it is pathological. It is pathological. It's rooted on this idea that if you're rich you can live in a healthy environment that if you've got everything in your favor you've got great health great power whatever great money all the resources at your disposal you should also be privileged by having the cleanest environment to live in right is that fair how is that fair it's not fair at all yeah it does like link back to like luxury housing like this whole idea of prestige this whole idea that basically what's happening in the late 20th century which is like the powerful wealthy bourgeois upper classes would would basically escape the city and they would go and live in the suburbs and they would drive through the city in a polluting car and on a red route and like make everybody like breathe deep on the fumes of their healthy lifestyle uh, living in an executive box in the, in the suburbs in Surrey or something like that. It, it's it's pathological and like it's in um, its despairing and it happens now like it happens architecturally like in affordable housing schemes like the, the affordable homes will be put lower nearer the busy roads They'll be put next to the railway track with the noise pollution. Uh, you know they'll they'll build the affordable units above the electricity transformer. You know it will. They were all kinds of like just like really des- despairing decisions, which are which are made um if you want to read more about the topic uh it's called environmental racism there are all kinds of studies about the sighting of like big industrial concerns clusters of cancer this is here and around the world by the way like you know, this happens this is a real pattern of economic development and also built environment uh you know the phrasing of it and like it's um it's terrifying and it's really, it's good that this is being called out in this study and it certainly is an issue which is gaining more traction, certainly in policy with issues around air pollution and so on. Um, but, you know, air pollution is just the start, like this is, there are so many levels.
1: Earlier this year, we had Melissa York, the assistant property editor at The Times, on the show to discuss the burden on the NHS caused by poor housing. Her own investigation found that illnesses caused by the UK's cold and substandard homes are the top housing-related cost burden to the NHS, equating to a staggering £1.4 billion every year. Her report also found that factors relating to the quality, security and affordability of homes all have significant impacts on tenant or homeowner health. However, the type of tenure also faces its own unique set of challenges, Here she is to explain a bit more about this.
4: Basically, homeowners and private rental homes share the same housing related cost burden to the NHS. And the biggest one is uh, cold and freezing houses. And that's kind of a double edged sword. So basically, private rentals and um, homeowner owned houses, uh, they tend to be much older than social housing. And the people living in kind of Outright owned homes and things like that tend to be much older as well, because of course, as we know, younger kind of generations tend to be renting more into older age. So I think the average age of a homeowner is about fifty-eight. So they're more likely to need the NHS. It's about three point three percent of owner occupied homes are like excessively cold, and obviously, as I said, that causes asthma, basically damage to the patient's immune system, and again, just considerable stress. Really, you know, if you go home, you're freezing cold every night. It's not great for your mental health either and there's that and that's kind of a double edged sword really because you've got people who can't afford to upgrade their old housing they can't afford to insulate it they can't um, afford to pay the energy bills. You know, that's another huge thing at the moment, obviously. Um, but they also can't afford to fix the roof or put roof insulation in or, you know, they although those kind of things um, and they're just just sitting in these freezing cold houses and it has massive effects. Also, it, you know, exacerbates kind of mould and things like that as well. So, yeah, I mean, in that way, private rented housing and an owner occupied housing face very similar problems. Obviously, if you're a homeowner, you've got more incentive to put that money in because you have to live in it every day. You've got that incentive to actually go, oh, actually, I will put in a heat pump or, you know, I will spend money on insulation or whatever. And then obviously you reap the benefits of it when you go to sell the house because your EPC goes up and you get property values go up. If your private tenant is completely out of control you've just got to pay the bills that are given to you you you've got to ask the landlord to upgrade all of um you know your your old drafty housing and your private landlord about 60% of them are individuals that own only one or two properties they're not in this country huge institutional landlords that invest for the long term so a lot of the time they will just take the income every month and they They won't have enough to cover, you know, cover the mortgage, but they might not have enough to cover upgrades and things like that. They've got no incentive to do it either because they're not living in it and they're not paying the bills. They're just making the bills cheaper for the tenant. And, you know, I'm not suggesting they have like enormous animosity towards the tenant and they want them to pay massive bills. Um, But it's, um, yeah, they don't get the direct benefit of it, basically, until they go to sell it. Um, And even then. You know, are you really going to bother? If you've been a landlord of a property for 20-odd years, your house price has gone up enormously. You've made a huge profit anyway, even without doing any upgrades. So 17% of homes in England are social rented housing. Data from the Building Research Establishment, which is the BRE, indicates that 9% of social houses are in poor condition. However, social housing accounts for only 6% of housing-related costs to the NHS. Many would assume that people in social housing some of the most vulnerable people in society would have a higher housing related cost burden on the health service why isn't this the case social housing has been in the news recently and that, and so therefore i think people think that the the problem in terms of the condition of social housing is is really bad uh, they've got kind of uh this this view of it as being much worse than private rented housing and actually that's not true private rented housing is the worst condition housing um, in the UK. I think it's about one in four of them are deemed to be non-decent. But obviously there are problems within social housing. And as I said, I think it's been in the news a lot recently because we had a the kind of tragic death of a two-year-old who was a wabishak. He died in um, December 2020. And uh, it was possibly the first time that an inquest had blamed his housing conditions, basically. It said it directly caused Um, his death from kind of a respiratory condition. And often it's the case that the tenant, unfortunately, tenant's lifestyle will be blamed for that um, because they didn't open windows or, you know, whatever. Um, There were some horrific things that have come out uh, in terms of what tenants are blamed for. So, yeah, that's why he's been in the news. You've also got um, housing campaigners like Quajo Twenoboa, who's obviously got a huge following on uh, Twitter, Um, who holds basically social landlords to account for not fixing terrible conditions in housing. Yeah, so basically because of that, I think people have got an inflated idea of how bad social housing is. And it isn't as bad as private rented or owner-occupied housing, basically. And the reason for that is because it's within government control, right? So it's better regulated. They've got something called a decent home standard, which they're looking at bringing in for private rentals in the rental reform bill that's coming up. So they all have to meet a certain standard. The housing's generally newer as well. So it's generally better insulated. Um, Most of it was built post-1945. And a lot of private rented housing, for instance, was um, built prior to 1919. Yeah, and also, when I say it's regulated, um, if your social landlord, whether that be the council or a housing association, doesn't fix something that's going wrong in your home, um, you can take them to the housing ombudsman for free. And the housing ombudsman will say, you know, they'll they'll find in your favour, they can find the housing associations, they can do um, all sorts of things like that, and they have certain standards that they're expected to meet. You can take your your landlord to court, um, but obviously... You could end up paying your landlord's costs. And as a private tenant, you might not be able to do that. And as I said, if you're a homeowner, it's, on, it's up to you to fix your housing. You might not always have the savings to do it. So that's why, actually, you've actually got recourse for, for social housing. That's not to say there aren't problems with social housing, there are just different problems. So, for instance, you know, with social housing, um, damp and cold isn't the biggest problem. It's actually things like um, overcrowding. Um, falls downstairs in homes again uh, mobility concerns like lack of accessibility more than half so I think it's like 54% of social households contain at least one member with a disability and that's kind of one in four for private renters about a third just under a third of homeowners so obviously you've got people that perhaps were were veterans or perhaps are on personal independence payments so they they can't be in work and afford private rents and so therefore this housing has to be much more at accessible and it and it just isn't really you know it it was built as i said lots of it in the 40s and 50s when this kind of thing wasn't taken into consideration wheelchairs weren't kind of as as cheap and or as accessible you certainly didn't have you know uh, all of the great kind of grab rails and gadgets that you do now so a lot of this housing also needs to be adapted
1: one of the major drivers behind this crisis is the distinct lack of council housing driven by both the depletion of existing stock through schemes such as right-to-buy and the drastic reduction in the numbers of new social rent homes being built. To illustrate this, since the introduction of right-to-buy, an estimated 1.8 million council homes have been sold off into private ownership. Meanwhile, new council house building fell from an average of 33,000 units per year in the 1980s to virtually zero by 1993. We're now in a situation where 1.1 million people, to visualise that, that's nearly the population of Birmingham, are on council housing waiting lists across the UK. This number of people in temporary and emergency accommodation costs the government approximately £30 billion in housing benefits every year. In London alone, more than 170,000 people, including more than 83,000 children, are currently living in temporary accommodation and some face waits of over 10 years to get a council house in the city. Earlier this year, a pressure group within the Labour Party issued a bold statement urging the government to buy half a million private rental properties and convert them into social housing. The Fabian Society's report, which generally focused on ending poverty and regional inequality in England, insisted a future government should earmark £15 billion over a 10 year period to purchase. 500,000 private rental properties in order to tackle the housing crisis the statement also emphasized a locally led approach and stipulated the focus should be on homes that are empty non-decent or energy inefficient the fabian society advocated for offering tax reliefs or exemptions to participating local authorities and housing associations This strategic move would free up funds for essential refurbishments and energy efficiency improvements. The Comprehensive Policy Statement also called for quote "...stronger renter protections and greater security of tenure," including the abolition of Section 21 eviction powers, an increased notice period for evictions, and a permanent ban on winter evictions. We asked George Kafka, writer and future observatory curator at the Design Museum, his opinions on the feasibility of such a bold idea.
5: I think this is a really fascinating proposal. I'm particularly interested in that part of it, which is looking at empty. Uh, non-decent or energy inefficient homes so this isn't just a proposal for building new homes on unused land but actually there's potentially a sort of revolutionary retrofit scheme um, in this proposal so this isn't only a call for social housing but also for renovations of the pre-existing housing stock which we're going to need for you know the next couple of generations this is an, an energy efficient way um, of providing new housing while preventing demolition restoring the pre-existing ho- housing stock which comes with a whole series of you know potentially interesting architectural responses as well. And I think anything that's calling for, you know, a better deal for for renters um, is is something that we should be we should be supporting.
6: Yeah, but I mean this is pretty radical stuff in there. How easy do you think something like this would be to implement, you know, realistically given I guess the sort of status that being a landlord um, has, I think it's probably aspirational to quite a lot of people to be able to own one and live in one, uh, own one that you can rent out and live in your own home as well. Um, You know, is this kind of slightly crazy pie in the sky stuff?
5: Possibly, yeah. I think it would, like, as with a lot of these things that we've been discussing, like, require a large cultural shift. Landlords have a lot of power. The idea of home ownership has a lot of power, but that's also not an inevitable position. That's not an inevitable cultural position. It's something that has developed over the last thirty years. And in previous generations, we have seen um, huge populations of this country living in in publicly owned housing. There's no reason um, why we we couldn't imagine that again. And I think you know the fact that this is coming from the Fabian Society, um, a kind of you know on the right of the Labour Party, um, really shows that this is a kind of a, a becoming a more mainstream position. Like the extent. Of the housing crisis is is being felt across the board and there's a real need for radical thinking pie in the sky perhaps um is one way of thinking about it i think um, a much needed breath of fresh air perhaps
1: the labour party put forward their own suggestion on how to tackle the lack of affordable housing earlier this spring when it outlined plans to allow local authorities to buy land cheaply In pursuit of a, quote, pro-building agenda to be implemented if victorious in the general election next year, Labour pledged to introduce legislation that would grant councils the authority to purchase land for development purposes without incurring the exorbitant so-called hope value. This is an expensive premium granted to land on which developers hope to secure planning permission. We spoke to Peter Apps, the journalist and author of the powerful account of the Grenfell disaster, Show Me the Bodies, and asked him if he thought this new policy could help the government get closer to achieving its housing target of 300,000 new homes per year.
7: I think what what it will do is, hopefully, if it works, make the development of social housing in um, high value areas more viable. Um, because one of the primary difficulties you have to build a social rented housing development is that you have to pay an awful lot of money up front for the land and once that money's been paid then in order to make that that scheme viable with affordable rents genuinely affordable rents so you need to put an enormous amount of grant in to, to, to balance that out um, if you could get the land cheaper you then would be able to viably build social rented housing with lower levels of grant and therefore it it might do a lot of good in areas where the is that that is the reason that we don't have social housing being built and that is that is quite a lot of areas and it's areas where that stuff is much needed i think that in terms of overall housing supply if you build private housing on a site where you got the land cheaply i don't think that private house builders it's not within their business model to then sell those homes more cheaply they'll sell them at whatever the market dictates they can sell them at and they'll take a bigger profit margin so i I don't think the reasons that that housing is very expensive and the reason that uh, we don't have enough housing being built is necessarily because land costs so much i think that I think that that's, you know, it comes down to sort of delays in the planning system. It comes down to, to, to the various other elements of the, the house building model, um, which aren't working. But th- th- what this could do is where local authorities want to, to get a site to use for social housing. It's, it's a tool in their arsenal to make that make the sum stack up. And as a result, I think it's a good thing.
0: Now, what's really defined housing policy is, is that we've had a housing crisis for decades We've had lots of talk about solving it, which has always resulted in some kind of, like, small thing, which does not actually resolve the bigger problem, right? Mm. 300,000 homes need to be delivered annually. We're hearing from the Labour Party this policy, this policy proposal, which... I'm hearing from you is is just a small thing that probably isn't going to get to the 300,000 that we actually need. What do we actually need to have a real housing policy that gives us the 300,000? Because with all the complexity, with all the controversy, it sounds like the only way is some kind of statutory government mandated large scale house building programme
7: in in the sort of post war history of of britain we've only really ever got close to those numbers when we've been building large amounts of council housing the private market will will deliver a level of housing but i don't think you can just you can just keep keep ramping up private house building and expect to get anywhere close to 300,000 you have to do that and deliver large amounts of social and affordable housing and that's important as well because you know 300,000 homes a year nobody expects that to take house prices down to a level where they're affordable very fast it's not really how the the house building market operates it would more stabilize house prices than actively reduce them certainly in the short to medium term if you want to house people who currently can't afford housing, which is a lot of people, you have to be asking what the tenure of those three hundred thousand homes is going to be as well. Um, so to get to the level of supply we need, and to get to the um, uh, to actually kind of provide housing for people who currently aren't able to access it. I think you need to be looking at not just a target for 300,000 homes overall, but I, I, I think the target I think Labour should adopt and this is kind of, um, well, all, all political parties should adopt and it's it's supported uh, by various think tanks and, and, and other organisations is 100,000 social rented homes a year. So a million social rented homes over 10 years. Um, that would start to kind of make up the deficit of the amount that we've lost through the right to buy and through demolitions and all kinds of other things. And start to address the people can move into social housing when they need housing, uh, when they're in housing need, that reduces pressure on the private rented sector. So that reduces private rented sector rents. And as private rented sector rents reduce, maybe more people can move into, can afford to buy. Um, if, if there's less of a kind of hot demand for for private rented housing, um. You don't have buy-to-let landlords kind of coming into the market so much and driving the price up because people can can house themselves through social housing. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think that the the, the answer to all of these things, and I, I probably would say this, but um, is, is is to invest once more in in a genuine national program of social social rented house building.
1: The shortage in affordable housing has been hiking prices in the private rental market for decades, to the point where now just 4% of homes in England are affordable with housing benefit. We've seen the situation escalate considerably over the past couple of years, with some areas seeing rent hikes of up to 20% over the past 12 months. Research from the homelessness charity Crisis, along with Zoopla, highlights a dire situation faced by nearly 2 million private renters in England who rely on housing benefits to help cover their rent, a figure which equates to more than one in three private renters. The unaffordability crisis is underscored underscored by the fact that the percentage of affordable homes in England has plummeted by 66% since last April, And the impact on low-income households has been magnified by the fact that local housing allowance rates, which determine how much financial assistance households can receive, have frozen since 2020. The effect of this has been a shortfall between the benefits received and the actual cost of housing, which has nearly doubled across the past 12 months. Examining the geographic distribution of unaffordability, the research reveals that in numerous parts of the UK, less than 1% of homes can be considered affordable for those relying on local housing allowances. In the Ribble Valley of Lancashire, for instance, 0% of homes were found to be within reach for prospective tenants. We put this to Prudence Ivy, the editor of Homes and Property at the Evening Standard earlier this year.
8: Uh, This is completely horrendous. We ran a story a few weeks ago in uh, Homes and Property about the number of families, so children, in temporary accommodation in London is at record highs. It's in the thousands. You could fill the Royal Albert Hall 14 times with the number of children living in temporary accommodation. This is since last November, which seems to be the strange tipping point for private rentals when all of a sudden families were often being evicted by their private landlords for various reasons either rent increases or they were selling up and being thrown on to the mercies of the council because there was no more housing in their area that met their local housing allowance provision um it's a it's a complete scandal it's been building for a long time all of the kind of mechanisms have been in place for this for years. It is obviously to do with social housing and the lack thereof. It's a totally false economy as far as I can tell it's it's kind of classic government moves of effectively subsidising private landlords with some degree of housing benefit rather than spending what in the long run would be less money. Quite a lot of people have done those sums and it would be less money to build new social housing, where people could live at affordable rents. I mean, that's really it.
0: I mean, it sounds like uh, you're pointing the picture to it, like a lot of policy, uh, which is behind this, but it, is that sort of dodging the issue that this cultural factor, that in politics, in society, so much attention and credit is given to like home ownership people on the property ladder like there were pages and pages in newspapers dedicated to that and the art of that and the kind of um, aspirations around it Um, but at the same time you've got a chunk of people um, which we've known this crisis is brewing for for decades um, which is just you're not really getting the coverage at all
8: there has been a lot of talk about the rental crisis certainly in the kind of Property media side of things, it has been growing. And I, I know a lot of people are saying, oh, mortgages get all the headlines, renters uh, are ignored. But I, I'm not actually sure I agree that that has been the case recently. I do think it has been the case for decades. I think that is true. Um, and I think an interesting thing that's happening actually is you've got all these kind of middle class newspaper reporters of a certain age who own their own homes and have been happily paying mortgages and all the rest of it. And they didn't really believe that rent was a problem or rent was expensive or rent was happening you know they didn't know about it and all of a sudden their children are entering the world of being adults and having to pay their way and are are suddenly revealing to them this toxic property market that actually has been in existence for for years and years and years
1: the past few summers where europe has experienced extreme weather conditions record-breaking heat waves and even wildfires has drawn our attention to yet another failing aspect of the UK's housing stock. This year climate scientists warned that the increased frequency of heat waves could turn UK homes into quote lethal furnaces with the potential to threaten the lives of thousands. Hannah L. Cloak, professor of hydrology at the University of Reading said quote The UK has millions of homes that were built for the climate of 100 to 200 years ago. They are typically designed with pitch slate or tile roofs to keep the rain out, with chimneys for coal fires to stay warm. These buildings give our towns and cities a lot of their character, but they are often incredibly badly suited to cope with a 21st century heatwave. She went on, quote, Some concrete built flats with no shading and poor ventilation can become lethal furnaces for vulnerable people. If you're elderly or have health problems, especially issues with breathing or your circulation or if you're a newborn baby, you'll be especially vulnerable. That is why heatwaves can kill thousands of people in the UK as they did in 2020 and 2022. So the Office for National Statistics recorded 3,271 excess deaths connected to the heat waves in summer 2022, a number 6.2% higher than the five-year average. And the level of unpreparedness was again highlighted last summer when thousands of people across the southeast were left without water for days as a result of the recent heat wave. Here's a journalist, Kate Wagner, author of the blog McMansion Hell, talking about this to Merlin uh, earlier this summer.
6: This is a problem that is going to be spreading all across the world as the world warms. I mean, the best time to think about how we can change our way of building was probably 50 years ago. The second best time is now. The obvious, like, kind of panic now in a lot of environmental circles, in a lot of circles in terms of like architecture and the environment, is that the solution to this problem is just going to be air conditioning, which is just going to actually make the problem worse by, you know, heating the world even more. And so I think that actually there are lessons that can be learned from these buildings from a hundred years ago, which is that you need to build to the climate that you're in. And that requires a kind of different outlook on building than just thinking that technology will solve the problem because at scale probably not you know for example a lot of houses in europe this is a huge culture shock for americans actually because in america everything is air conditioned it's ridiculous and it's like air conditioned to just extremely cold temperatures inside this does not happen in europe it doesn't happen anywhere in europe and even if something is air conditioned it's not like it's not cold in there
0: and and this is one of the things when your body is exposed to heat, um, you need to have um, moments where you can cool down in the day. So one of the big issues in the UK last summer was that it didn't get cold at night. And so your body temperature is high. And then at night, when you naturally get to recover and cool down it wasn't happening. And we don't really have as many air-conditioned environments. So like, if you went to work and you spent six hours in a, a refrigerator, basically, that gave your body a chance to recover. But if you weren't somebody who had that opportunity, um, you're really, really at risk. And it's worth looking back to 2003. There was an enormous heat wave all across Europe that killed, in France alone, 14,000 people. A lot of studies were done afterwards, and they found that the majority of the people who died were elderly people who lived in top floor flats with no access to any kind of outdoor space, often right in the eaves of the roof. You can imagine these sort of French, beautiful French houses with a tiny apartment to the top. And, um, you know, people were baking in there. And, you know, it's an architectural issue. It's also a, very much a thing that can we can prepare around, just like... Um, you know, we should be preparing around pandemics and other things like, you know, this is a real problem that will potentially kill thousands of people in top floor apartments with bad ventilation. Um, You know, surely something something needs to be done.
6: There's more and more research going on in architecture about things like Passive House, for example, which is a, a system of building that heavily regulates insulation, for example, like where it makes the walls are so thick and it is such a low carbon way of building also, which is a bonus that cool air stays in and warm air is kept out in the summer. And in the winter, warm air is kept in and cool air is shut out without having to use as much resources as a general kind of just plop an air conditioning unit on there. And so at the time to start thinking about that, it, this is now, it's like, we can't just like patch up the problem by buying everyone an air conditioner. That's not the, actually the solution. We have to start building in completely different ways. We have to start thinking about heat the way we would think about water, for example. No one wants to have a house that leaks.
1: These are just a select few of the many housing stories we've covered over the past year. If you've enjoyed these stories and would like to hear more, the links to the full episodes featured are in the show notes, so do check them out. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode and stay tuned for a regular episode of The Brief next week.
9: listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyberchadda and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable.